Hey, what's going on, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls? You're listening to This Week in Sports. It is Friday, June 9th, 2023. I want to first start off by saying uh, my apologies for last week. I was not prepared. Well, I shouldn't say that. I had a golf outing on Friday, so I took the day off. It was really hot that day. I was exhausted by the time I got home, and there was no way I was getting a podcast episode in. So I just decided not to do it that week. But we're back this week. It's an action-packed episode. I've got a lot to get to. Um... It's a big weekend for me, playing golf tomorrow. It's my dad's birthday. Um, So, you know, a lot going on and a lot to recap. So we're almost, we're just about towards the uh, halfway point here in June, and we're almost, almost into those summer months. So it's a good time of year, unless you're like me living on the East Coast here, where this whole week we've had this insane smoke and smog from these Canadian wildfires, which is just, in 31 years, I've never experienced anything like this ever. Um, We don't live in California. We don't see wildfires like this. And who would have thought that smoke from Canada and these wildfires is so insane that these wind streams are bringing it here. They had to cancel the Yankee game the other night. Um, they canceled a WNBA game, which I thought was weird because that's inside. Um, yeah, it, it, they've closed um, city offices and government offices early here in Jersey because of the uh, of the weather and, and the poor air quality. Um, so hopefully by the end of this weekend, it, it gets back to normal because it was really bad earlier in the week for sure. So I'm glad it's Friday for sure. Um, didn't get much sleep this entire week. This entire week, I don't know why. I just felt like I was I was really exhausted and tired in the mornings, sleeping through my alarm multiple days, and I had some not to boot. I had some. Uh, dental work done yesterday. I had three cavities filled. So for like three hours, the entire bottom of my face, I couldn't feel it from like my bottom lip down to my, basically out to my cheeks and down to my chin. It felt really weird for a while. Um, but I'm okay. No pain or anything like that. Um, so yeah, with that being said, let's jump in. Oh, and by the way, the golf outing I had last weekend, Uh, or last Friday with my brother. My brother was absolutely horrible. He said he was sick. I don't know if I'm buying that, but it was probably the worst I've ever seen him play. Um, So me and this other dude, uh, my brother's friend, it was all my brother's friends from high school, we are foursome. We birdied seven of our first eight holes. I'll give my brother credit. He sunk like two 35-plus foot putts throughout the round. So we birdied seven of the first eight holes, and we finished nine under. We had just one damn bogey. Three of us missed a par putt um, by like an inch or two, and we bogeyed 16, the 16th hole, which was our 17th hole. And we could have finished 10 under, which would have given us sole possession of third place. 
But it's funny, if you've ever played in a golf outing, everybody cheats, right? So the team that won claimed that they finished 18 under par. So if you know anything about golf, there's 18 holes. That means they birdied every single hole or eagled par fives and parred one or two holes, which is absolutely garbage and BS because there's no professional golfers that were at this golf outing. Let me tell you. And people were were hammering the alcohol, and it was 90 degrees outside. So, yeah, it was, for lack of a better term, a shit show. But I'll take it because tied for third, knowing we didn't cheat at all, feel good about that, especially considering I was playing with one guy who hadn't played in one year, the last time he played golf, in this golf outing, and my brother, who was literally horrible. The only thing he helped us with was a couple long putts. So, did pretty good. Next year, aim to do better. All right, so without further ado, let's jump right into episode 209 of This Week in Sports. All right, I can't say I've been watching much of the NHL playoffs since my Devils got eliminated, but you better believe I've been fully enthralled and engaged and checking scores live and seeing what's going on. And it's really weird because I had crazy deja vu this morning. So I'll give you the Stanley Cup update. We've got Vegas versus Florida, okay? And I'm rude. I don't know who I'm I'm probably... I could go either way with this. Vegas is an upstart team. They, you know, they got to the finals in their first year and they didn't win it. And now they're back, what, two years later. And then you've got the eight seed Florida, who's just unbelievable. They came back from down 3 1 to beat Boston. You know, they, 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 um, they, they've beaten everybody. They then beat the Hurricanes in, in the conference finals. And, Slowly but surely, I ha- again, I haven't watched these first couple games of, of this series, but first game, Vegas won. They beat them up pretty good, like 5-2 to two or something. Second game, I know, was 7-2, to two, and I'm like, oh boy, um, they're getting overwhelmed. This is going to be, you know, like, is this going to be like a Denver-Miami situation, an 8-seed versus a 1-seed, and they just get obliterated type of thing? Because, you know, this started around the same time as the NBA Finals, and you didn't know how it was going to go after Game 1 where Denver, you know, won pretty handily. Only cover, you know, won by 11, but still. Um, they didn't play their best, and they still won by double digits. So, yeah, after those first two games, it's like, whoa. And then last night, I wake up to find out that Florida won in overtime. So they were down 2-1. to one. I was checking in on this game, so they were up one nothing early, then it was 1-1, then they were down 2-1, and they tied the game 2-2, and they went to overtime, and this was the sound of the overtime game winner. It was like really quickly into overtime, too. Okay, yeah, so that was in Florida after two games in Vegas, and they got the job done at home, and that was, if you couldn't hear over the horns, that was Carter Verhage who netted the game winner. 
Um, prior to that, I said they scored. They tied the game with two minutes remaining. It was two minutes, 13 seconds, and it was none other than Matthew Kachuk, who I've mentioned previously on this show throughout these NHL playoffs, what he's been doing. It's just ridiculous. The win uh, for the Panthers gave the franchise its first ever win in a Stanley Cup final, and Florida has now won 10 straight overtime games, which is just insane. Uh, they will they will um, be back at it on the ice for game four tomorrow night. So keep an eye on that series because it's far from over. Next up, got to talk about the softball. As a softball coach myself, what Oklahoma has done these last three years is unbelievable. What they did this year, well, it's unprecedented. Well, pro- might never happen again. Good chance it never does happen again. Oklahoma three-peated and won themselves yet again another Women's College World Series. Oh, and by the way, just back to back this up again real quick, I totally forgot the deja vu thing. When I woke up this morning and saw the Panthers won 3-2 in overtime, I had this weird sense of deja vu like – I knew that score already, and I knew that they had won three two in overtime. Like I, I was it was playing in my head like like a memory. Once I saw that it was three two, I'm like, wait, I feel like I knew that, like I did this before. So I don't know. I don't think I woke up in the middle of the night and like checked the score. So it's very weird. I mean, maybe there's a possibility before I went to bed I checked the score, but. I don't think I did because when I woke up, I'm like, I want to know what the score was. So just very weird, you know, uh, some weird sense of deja vu there. So anyway, back to Oklahoma. I tend to digress. The Sooners, I mean, come on. You knew it was going to be, if you know anything about Oklahoma and what they've done in college softball the last bunch of years, you knew they were probably, you know, going to be here at the end. And it came down to Oklahoma and Florida State. This was actually a rematch of the 2021 Women's College World Series. And game one, Oklahoma won it five to nothing. It was a bit perplexing when they took out the starting pitcher in like the third or I think it was the fourth inning after she had given up just one hit to that point. And they went with the lefty who in the previous game in the um, semifinal, I want to say against Tennessee, she was called for four illegal pitches, and they went to the lefty anyway, and Oklahoma has one lefty in the lineup. Um, I get it's not the same splits with, like, lefties versus righty batters, et cetera, or lefty-lefties type of thing in, in college softball, but, of course, it was the wrong move, and it imploded real quick. And so anyway, Oklahoma then won the game last night 3 to 1. This was actually a good game. Florida State was up one nothing early and then the following inning Oklahoma scored I want at, at least two runs. They got a home run to tie it and they they ended up scoring, you know, a couple more runs throughout. Um and they, they capped it off. Florida State, it was a good effort. I'm glad we didn't see, like, last year against Texas where they were just obliterating them. Um, so 5 nothing, 3-1, respectable losses. So Oklahoma, they actually finished the season. This is this is not a mistake. 
This is real. They finished the season 61-1, and which culminated in a whopping 53-game winning streak that will continue into next season. Oh, my God. It was, again, I said this before, the program's third straight national title, their fifth in the last seven years, and sixth in the last 10 years. I mean, is that not mind-boggling to you? Only UCLA from 1988 to 1990 has achieved the same feat in softball. I mean, it's it's really... The only other thing I can compare this to is what Gino Oriema did in a span of about 10 years at UConn. Although it's funny to think about because, you know, Georgia Bulldogs, the football team, can actually three-peat this upcoming season because they've won two national championships in a row. But I'm a betting man, and I will bet you they don't win a third in a row. And I just wanted to compare really quickly because I sent something to my dad, actually, about this, um, if I can find it. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, It was a comparison between UCLA and Oklahoma, their three-peats here. So UCLA, in that three-year stretch when they from 88 to 90, only hit 25 home runs, but they had a .43 ERA, which is just insane. And by comparison, um, Oklahoma's ERA was pretty pretty darn good too. It was in the it, it was in the ones I believe, but they hit over four hundred home runs in in this three year period. Um, I, I just think personally, watching Division One softball, because you know I coach junior college, it's vastly different. It's not even doesn't even compare. Um, and so watching the D one softball, they play on about the same fields that our teams play on at the junior college level. Fences are about 200, maybe 220. And these, these girls that I coach are, I mean, I mean the tallest girl we get, maybe five, eight, these girls at the division one. And that's, that's maybe one or two girls. I mean, it's most of the girls, five, three, five, four, you know, five, five, occasionally like you're not taught. These aren't giants. Like at the division one level, every girl is 5'8", 5'10", 5'11". And these are big girls. They have access to elite state-of-the-art facilities. They have NIL money. They have world-class trainers. They have world-class strength and conditioning coaches. And it's unprecedented that the strength. You watch these games. Like, for example, the pitcher from Florida State, the girl Leonard, she was like two for 22, and I was wondering what the heck she was doing pitching and hitting. And in game two of the finals, she was just hitting, and she hits a home run, finally like breaks out of a slump. If you watch the swing, she's a lefty. She hits it into the right field bleachers. She's out in front, off her front foot, off balance, and doesn't even have a full follow-through. And the ball goes over the fence. I mean... And she's not even one of the like good hitters like that Oklahoma has. So it's just ridiculous to think, yeah, these girls are throwing harder. But again, you make contact, the ball is going to fly out of there when these girls are 5'10", 5'11", and, and just stud athletes like created in a lab. So I don't understand why 
there, there needs to be talk. Personally, if you want to grow this game, I really do believe what they need to do is they need to move the mound back further so these girls aren't getting blown away by 70-mile-an-hour pitches, and you need to definitely move the fences back because if you move the mounds back, there will be more contact, right? And so naturally, more home runs. If you leave the fence the same, you don't want that. So move the fence back as well, and you'll have a more balanced, more competitive sport. Because right now, if you watched those World Series games, yeah, you have the occasional bunt where they're throwing it away and making errors and runners are scoring like that. But most of the runs are scored via the home run. I mean, very, very, very sporadically, you have like a jam shot, base hit, um, or an infield single, or, or you know, um, a base hit through the through the left side. Most of the runs, Oklahoma, they just dominated everybody offensively by hitting home runs, and it's ridiculous to think they they only made like sixteen errors on the entire season. Um, so it's just incredible. That's my two cents. I think they should move the fences and the mound back, especially at that level, um, to even things out and to make it a more watchable sport, if that makes sense. But again, congrats to Patty Gasso and the Oklahoma Sooners for their third straight national championship. Okay, speaking, uh, sticking with the college, the NCAA has officially changed. We're talking basketball now. They have officially changed the block charge rule in men's basketball for, for next season. So, thank God. Um, this now makes it more difficult for defenders to earn charge calls. I think standing there and taking a charge, yeah, it's an art form. Um, a lot of guys can't do it. But I also think it's just ridiculous half the time because I watch a lot of these NBA games. I think Marcus Smart is known for taking the most charges, right? And like a guy's barreling down the court, I don't want to see a guy try to step in and take a charge. To me, that's lame. I want to see him take him on one-on-one, go straight up and try to block it or unfortunately get caught in a compromising position and get absolutely dunked on. But that's the type of player I am. I'm a small guy, 5'4", barely 5'4", if that. And if a guy's barreling down one-on-one, well, first of all, I when I play, it's on an outdoor court on concrete, so I'm not taking a charge that's just asinine, but I wouldn't take a charge anyway. I'm taking him on one-on-one, and guess what? I'm going straight up, and I'm hammering him. Or, or getting a clean block. But because I'm a small guy, you better believe I'm probably not blocking the ball, so I'm going to hammer you and, and and live to fight another day. You ain't making the basket. And if there was refs and, and I was playing organized basketball, you better believe I'd be doing the same thing. I'm not putting a block charge call in the ref's hands because how many times have we seen it in college and NBA? You take a charge and it's a clear block and they call charge or it's a clear charge and they call block. And and, and so, you know, now there's not, not going to be any of these late late step-ins, guy taking a charge. Here's the key difference to the, to the change. A defender must be in position to draw a charge when the offensive player plants his foot to go airborne. So you can't slide in once he's in the air and get a charge call anymore. His feet have to be on the ground. So this is going to look drastically different. We're going to get a, a whole lot of block calls, I think, going forward. It's going to take a lot of restraint and a lot of um, 
technique, if you will, to to master this this rule change because it, it it is gonna it is gonna be um, a tough adjustment for 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 a lot of these stalwart de- defensive type players, these three and D guys too. But yeah, I, again, I'm okay with this, one hundred percent. Okay, switch on over. Just one quick note um, to go over in the NFL. The uh, Carolina Panthers, no surprise here. They, yesterday, I believe it was, they elevated Bryce Young, their, the number one pick in the NFL draft, right? They elevated him to the number one spot. He was taking reps with the first team um, in OTAs. So no shocker here, right? I mean, you don't draft a quarterback number one overall to sit him behind Andy Dalton. So this is just, you know, a step in that in the direction um, in Bryce Young starting for the Panthers in week one. No big deal, really, but I just thought it is something I should mention. Okay, let's talk about the Big Ten for a second. So yesterday, the conference released its new outline for what it will look like with the additions of USC and UCLA. This is a little bit extensive and I don't know if I even have all of it um or understand all of it just yet but here here's here's basically verbatim what 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 they're going to do. So new scheduling format dubbed the Flex Protect Plus will be as follows. Divisions are gone. That is the big thing. Thank you Jesus. No more Michigan versus Purdue or Ohio State versus Wisconsin in in the Big 10 championship game where we have one team steamrolling another. Like Michigan beat Purdue by 21 points and Purdue was 8 and 6. No reason a team from the West should be in the Big 10 title game and I really just it's mind-boggling that they put this many good teams in the East and this many you know, subpar teams in the West. And I know they tried to base it on kind of like location um, with the East Coast teams, but my God, like did anybody realize what they were doing when they did that? So divisions are gone, thankfully. Um, Each school will get up to three permanent opponents, though many only have one. Penn State has none, apparently. And then everyone else rotates. Each school will play everybody in the conference within two-year spans, which is nice. And in theory, no great team will get to skate by every conference stalwart or have to play a gauntlet schedule every year. So, again, that, that makes sense because this is easily the toughest conference in America at this point, adding these two schools. I mean, I don't know how my Rutgers team is even going to compete I'm just glad they're still in this conference at this point. So, um, and then, so we get to keep the the traditional rivalries. So we get to keep USC, UCLA, um, which again, it's nice because a lot of times these teams, Pac-12, they're playing late at night. They're, you know, they only play a couple games here and there. Like I only get to see the Oregons and some of the Pac-12 teams. Like I haven't seen a UCLA really play a game in a very long time. I mean, that's a lie, but you know what I'm saying. The last bunch of years, um, now that they've gotten back to, to a bit of prominence, I've seen them a little bit more now because they've been in more prime time. But normally, they're Pac-12. You don't get to watch those games here on the East Coast. So that's nice. And then we're keeping Ohio State, Michigan, obviously. Michigan also keeps Michigan State. Makes sense. That's a rivalry there, right? 
But interestingly, Rutgers-Maryland made the cut as a permanent rivalry, which they keep trying to force this Rutgers-Maryland thing. It's not a rivalry. I went to Rutgers. I was, what, a sophomore at Rutgers when they made the announcement that Rutgers and Maryland would be joining the Big Ten, and I remember just the excitement on campus and everything else when that was announced. But it's like, that's not a rivalry. Our rivals, if anything, is Penn State. That goes way back. So it's just funny that pe- these people in charge are trying to push this as if it's an actual rivalry. But whatever, okay. Again, I'm just not I'm not going to complain as long as we're still a part of this conference. Hopefully at least this can draw a little bit more of that talent to stay in, in the state of New Jersey and stop freaking Harbaugh from leeching all this great talent. Because I, I swear, besides like your Texas's, Florida's, California, and you know, some of the others sprinkled in there, Ohio's, New Jersey has some of the absolute best, best talent for football. And these guys just never stay in, in you know, in New, in New Jersey. Um, so it, it's frustrating, but we'll see if we can hang on. Who, who the hell knows? All right, we've got the Belmont Stakes tomorrow night. Post time for the Belmont is 7.02, and it will be broadcast on Fox. I think coverage is starting at like 4 o'clock or noon. FS1 is going to have coverage as well. My brother's actually supposed to be going um, to the Belmont Stakes. He has tickets for that. That's cool. Um, You've got Forte, the 5-2 favorite, to win the 2023 Belmont Stakes will run from the number six post, one of three positions being utilized on Saturday that have fewer than 10 victories. So it's a tough blow for Forte, who was scratched and is making um, its first run in more than a month, which it's only done one other time. Of course, Forte had that foot injury and was a late scratch, I think, morning of the Kentucky Derby race about a month ago. And we'll see, this is obviously in New York, we'll see again if any of the smokiness from the wildfires plays any role in this with the horses. You, you never know. These are animals, how they breathe, how they how they handle the weather conditions and all that good stuff. Um, tap it shoes, my pick, that's my pick to win, 20 to 1 odds, and we'll be running out of the number one post. I'm banking on that as a factor for picking this horse because the number one post, I believe, has seen the most wins all time. And they've got Jose L. Ortiz, who's one of the best jockeys in the country, riding this horse. So I really like this horse with those odds. Um, You've got Bob Baffert's National Treasure, which uh, recently won the Preakness Stakes and is going off at 5-1. to So um, if you're going to bet on this race... Get those, get those in before uh, seven o'clock tomorrow. Um, I'm looking forward to that, to that race. I will catch that after my round of golf, which will be nice. I'm sure my brother will be texting me um, from live from there, so so that'll be cool as well. Um, back to some NFL news real quick. The Broncos are signing Frank Clark to a one-year, seven and a half million dollar deal. Clark spent the last four seasons um, of his career with the Chiefs, of course, won two Super Bowls and made three Pro Bowls. So it's a good addition um, at D-end for the the Broncos. 
You've also got Dalvin Cook set to be released by the Vikings. He teased the landing spot of Miami, but my one buddy who's a big Jets fan like myself said the Jets um, have the the are, are the favorite team to land him. I don't know if that's according to the sports books or or, or, or I get or unless they're you know. I don't know what, but uh, it looks like they are the betting favorite to land Dalvin Cook. I know um, Robert Sala, head coach of the Jets, kind of you know made comments about how he would probably love. Um, I don't know his exact comments, but I just got I got a notification saying that you know he he would like Dalvin Cook on the Jets. I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah, there's some injury concerns there, but you pair him with Brees Hall who's coming back from that ACL. It's going to take him probably a few weeks. Um, but anyway, back to those Dolphins rumors. Um, they asked head coach Mike McDaniel about it. This was just wild. I heard this on the radio this morning. Listen to his response. Just weird. March 3rd, 1983. Uh, that day I was born, right? Now we take a closer look at that date. And... That, in fact, was not yesterday. Okay, so um, uh, people that are on, people are rumored to be um, tall, short, people that are rumored to be, um, you know, that's, you're not, you're not going to get this guy. I'm year two, okay? What does that mean? <laughs> What does that mean? No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. What the hell did he just? Yeah, that's the guys on ESPN, um, NFL Insider, talking about that. Exactly. Basically, what he is trying to say, and it's just bizarre to think. What you look at this guy, you would not think NFL head coach. It's just crazy. Anyway. Um, Basically, he's saying, I was not born yesterday. You're not going to fool this guy. It's not my first year anymore. It's my second year. I'm not talking about uh, about what-ifs and maybes, and I'm not going to leak any info to the press or to the reporters about whether we're going after Dalvin Cook or whether this is a thing because they hadn't, I don't, uh, they hadn't yet released him. I don't know if they officially released him at the time that I'm recording this right now either. So he doesn't want any tampering and any of that stuff, but just... I don't know why he couldn't get to that point. Like, is he trying to? Is he trying to be like a Bill Belichick or this snobby, you know, arrogant guy? Not. I don't think arrogance the right word or snobby, but it's like he's trying to be this cool coach that is going to give the runaround answer, like a Bill Belichick, where you don't really answer the question, you know, because um, he didn't really answer the question. He just totally like danced around it, and nobody really knew what the hell he was talking about. Um, also there has been a huge, I, I didn't have this in my notes, but I thought it's worth mentioning. Isaiah Rogers senior is now the latest wrapped up in a sports betting scandal. So what's going on with all these NFL players in this off season that have been hit with suspensions for sports betting. What's happening here is that most of these guys, all right, let's face it. How do I say this without angering people? NFL players, they mo a lot of them would agree that they are not the smartest or brightest 
bulb in the box, right? They don't know what the hell they're doing. How many times do you hear about these former NFL players that go bankrupt or made bad investments or what or what have you? There's a lot of NFL players that end up in prison as well. Um, so a lot of times these guys are not the smartest. And without football, they might be struggling or they might be um, financially insecure, if you will. So, so basically... Um, these guys don't understand their own rules and own league policy. What's happening is these guys don't realize that they're not, it's not that they're not allowed to bet on sports or bet on other sports, I believe. It's the fact that most of them are getting caught up because they're doing it at team, excuse me, team facilities. And what's really troubling and unfortunate for this Isaiah Rogers who put out a statement on on Twitter basically apologizing and just saying he he screwed up. These guys don't understand though that you can't place bets on you know your company's uh headquarters or or uh, uh where you work. You cannot be at a practice facility if you're a player or a state or the stadium of your team and be placing these bets. And what what's crazy for this guy Rogers is he was making hundreds of bets through an acquaintance. So yet to be determined how that leaked. And these were between $25 and $50 bets, which I have to give a round of applause because I don't know what this man makes, probably a million close to it at least, right? Even if it's the league minimum, it's hundreds of thousands, 500, 600,000, stuff like that, right? And he was not making these million-dollar bets or these $50,000. He was just making, you know, somebody that makes that that's loaded like that or a celebrity or an athlete that's making small wagers like that between 25 and 50, that's somebody that's doing it because it's genuinely fun for them, and they just want to be able to have a good time, you know, bet a little bit, have a little bit, you know, extra on the game to make it more fun to watch. Unfortunately, not only was he betting on other sports, he was betting on football and he pulled a Pete Rose and was betting on his own team. So this kid is screwed. I mean, just really effed, if you will. And he's probably going to get a full year suspension at the minimum. I mean, the NFL, Roger Goodell, they have to send a message. You cannot be betting on your team. Although, truthfully, I'm a gambling man. If you're betting on your team to win... What is the problem? Seriously, who cares? The only issue arises in the fact that you could be point shaving. You could be, um, you know, if you bet against your team, and I think he's a cornerback, and then he's literally purposefully letting the other team score, not playing, like then we have a serious issue. But this is all regulated. These these teams are literally are playing in stadiums that have sponsorship deals with sports books. Um, the Saints play in, in Caesars, in the Caesars Superdome, I think it's called now. So so this thing is so prevalent, it's everywhere since they legalized it. You see commercials every five seconds for DraftKings, FanDuel, Barstool Sportsbook, you name it, Caesars. Everybody's got a sports book, and it's so easy to do it right from your phone. It's so easy. And these guys want to do it. They have the money. They lo- if you're an athlete, 
you watch other sports. Like, it, you're, it's entertainment for you. I love to watch sports. And what do I do? I bet I bet on the NBA Finals the other night. I won $94. Like, yay me. It's fun to bet on sports. It's awesome. You can make a little coin if you know what you're doing. If you have a lot of money, you can really make coin if you know what you're doing. Like, the bet I placed the other night was a three-team parlay. I had a boost. So I think it was maxed. Um, they had a promo, so I think it was maxed probably $50, I think it was. So I only did 20 and I, I profited 84 off it. But, like, if even if I didn't do the boost, that was a three-player parlay um, and Nuggets minus two-and-a-half included in that three-teamer. So two players in that. And it hit. I had Aaron Gordon over 10-and-a-half points. He scored 11, so right on the money. Thank you. Thank you very much. But it was at least plus 300-something. It was like a very conservative uh, a bet because I also did a $10 bet promo. Um, Jimmy Butler and Jamal Murray each to score 20 points, so that hit as well. That's where I, I won the $94. But that plus 300, whatever, plus 400 parlay, if I would have bet instead of $20, God forbid I put $2,000 on it or even – some of these high rollers, $25,000 on it. I mean, we're talking three and four and five and six X, 10 times your money. So like some of these guys that, and even if I take, right, Denver was minus two and a half earlier in the day at minus 110. If I put thousands upon thousands of dollars, that's nearly even money. So $10,000, you're basically winning. $10,000 in just a couple of hours of clicking buttons on your phone. Now, maybe a, a crap ton of research goes into picking that. But for me, it's just watching, dissecting. I don't need to look at models. These pick the, the, these guys on the internet that like try to sell you their models and, and, and buy this from me and buy. No, I'm a sports junkie. I watch enough to know what's going to go on, and I knew Denver minus two and a half was a lock. The only reason I didn't take it come game time was it was minus three and a half, and I didn't want to get burned on the hook for a hundred bucks. So I still ended up. I would have only made ninety bucks because I don't pay the vig price. Minus one ten, I'm putting a hundred. I'll take the ninety gladly. I don't want to spend the extra ten bucks. Sorry. So it's that is what it is. So I would have won ninety, and I would have put up a hundred. Instead, I won ninety four, and I only put up thirty dollars. Yeah, that's why people like to bet and like to place wagers on sports. And look, we've got the Belmont tomorrow. People are going to go crazy betting on that. I tend to not bet on stuff like that because there is literally, we're talking about animals. We can't speak to them. We don't know what they're thinking. We only see with our eyes what's going on. And we don't really even get to see that because the only ones that do are the ones behind the scenes, the trainers, the jockeys. So we don't have much insider information to go on except their previous races and all that good stuff. So that's kind of like going into a casino and playing roulette or craps or or um, blackjack. Like I, I like playing that stuff, don't get me wrong, but I don't like playing that because that's how you lose money. If you, you know, that's that's all luck. And, and yeah, you know, people will argue that it's skill and blackjack and like stuff like that. But like roulette, come on, that's, that's luck. It's literally a spin of a dice on a board and you have to hope that it lands, the ball lands on your number or whatever. So 
I don't like to take chances on, on like chance games. I like the sports betting, which I can control. I'm picking a team or I'm picking a player because I've seen them and I this is what I think. That's why um, people like sports betting so much. And it's unfortunate that these guys are getting jammed up with all of this. So the NFL going forward, I think, has to do a better job. These teams have to do a better job of sitting their players down and explaining them the rules. Like, guys, do not, whatever you do, place bets on sports while you are in this facility. You want to place bets on sports, here's what you have to do, and boom, X, Y, and Z. One, two, three. These are things you can bet on. These are the things you can't bet on. These, This is when you can do it. This is when you can't. Things like that. All right. Enough of that. All right. Let's get to Aaron Judge and the Yankees. This is a big blow. Last Saturday, Aaron Judge made one of the great catches that you'll ever see. Great, great, One of the great catches of this season for sure when he crashed into the right field wall and literally went, practically went through it. Take a listen. This was last Saturday against the Dodgers in Eight LA. Crack down the line. Back to the corner goes Judge. It is caught by Aaron Judge. Wow. It is so much more than just the home runs. He is Superman. And what's crazy about this is Judge, that was in a 5-3 game with a man on first, no outs. J.D. Martinez hit that. If he don't make, doesn't make that play, run possibly scores or you have at least second and third, no outs, and the Yankees could lose that game. He makes the catch and stayed in the game, actually. Hit a laser of a home run in that game as well. And then on Sunday Night Baseball did not play the following day. And it's like, okay, here we go. Is he hurt? Then you start to find out there was four inches of thick-ass concrete at the base of the wall, a four-inch slab of concrete that his entire right foot slammed up against. And a couple days went by, and then we come to find out that Aaron Judge is going on the IL this week with a toe injury. It's like a contusion and a sprain, and there is some some concern. Um, here's Aaron Boone on the situation. It's going to be a few more days, apparently, before we, we know uh, or have a timetable. Judge said himself he doesn't have a timetable, but here's Aaron Boone. We spoke to, to Aaron a couple of minutes ago, and he's obviously frustrated. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to put a timetable on his on his return. I mean, do you have a general sense of what's going on? He didn't want to really discuss it because he obviously doesn't want to overshoot. Well, no, it, I mean that's it. what I try. I've been trying to convey the last couple of days. Like we're not going to know anything for a few days. Mm-hmm. He got a PRP injection into his toe, like so he's sore from that, and we got to get swelling out of there. And hopefully, in the coming days, <clears throat> you know, we'll have a better idea of timetable. But right now, you know, he's kind of hobbling around. You know, and especially from the shot he just got. So, um, you know, we're not going to know anything for at least a few days, I would imagine, on on having a decent um, 
guesstimate on the on the timeline. You're saying not really knowing with Judge. I mean, is there a chance it could be extended? What's extended? I mean, like, honestly, guys, with the with the timeline, we don't have a timeline right now. It, you know, we don't know. Got a shot in his toe yesterday. Bless you. Like, I ain't have an answer for you. When we do, we will give you the best timeline we possibly can. You know, like to throw out a timeline right now that's spread out. It's like it may be way better than that. It may be worse than that. So there you have it. Uh, listen. The Yankees are 10 games over 500. They got rain, uh well, not rained out, postponed because of the the fire smoke and everything. Played a doubleheader yesterday. Um lost the first game 6-5, won the second game 3-nothing. Shout out to Randy Vasquez making his debut pitch phenomenally. They lost the series. White Sox took 2 out of 3, but the Yankees are 10 games over 500, although they're 8 and a half behind the Rays who have now won 6 in a row. You take Judge out of the equation. Look at what this team was you know, a month ago when he was out for a little bit and missed, what, like 10 games. And now it seems like he's probably, if I had to guess, it could be anywhere from two to four weeks in my opinion. They're not. They're saying it's not a, a broken toe, but the, come on, a toe. I've had foot surgeries. I've had toe surgeries. I've had bone taken out of my toes. I've had screws inserted in my toes. Like a toe injury nags. My toes aren't the same still, and it's been 10 years. It's been like 10 years, yeah. So scary. This is scary. This is an injury that could very much so linger. He could ultimately need surgery. He might not be the same player the rest of the year. God forbid. Um, so he's the heart and soul of this team. He's the captain of this team. So it, it, it's really a shame. Um, and it took this Aaron Judge injury for the Dodgers to fix this issue in right field and, and around, I guess it goes around the whole fence. Um, so they, they reinforced it with some padding now. So hopefully this don't happen to the next guy. It's a shame. It just took Aaron judge getting hurt for them to do this. Okay. Um, in other baseball news, this is, to me, it's not a shocker, but it still is a big blow to the first-place Rangers. Their big offseason acquisition, Jacob deGrom, who they signed to a five-year, $185 million uh, deal, will be going will be undergoing Tommy John surgery. Recently, he was put on the 60-day IL, and now we know officially it is going to be TJ surgery. He will miss the rest of the season. And all I got to say is, boy, oh boy, did the Mets ever dodge a bullet there, although the Mets are a disaster in their own right, signing a 40-year-old pitcher in Justin Verlander coming off of Cy Young, who has an ERA over four and has given up seven home runs already this year, whereas all of last year, I believe he gave up 12 in 28 starts. So I'm not too surprised by the DeGrom news, unfortunately, I mean, he hasn't made more than 15 starts since 2019. He's a two-time Cy Young winner, sure. Um, got a career ERA of, what, 2.53. He turns 35 this month. And because of Tommy John surgery, we're looking at minimum 18 months. So we're talking two years. He won't be pitching again until he's almost 37 years old. So it's very possible you have to consider the fact that DeGrom may never make it back again and pitch ever again. It's very possible. 
So if, if you put that into perspective, um, I think it hit DeGrom, and, and that's why I'm going to play this clip. You can tell how, you know, he's extremely emotional. He's crying. He 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 does care. Um, it's just, it's tough because everyone said a number of years ago that this guy brings it every single pitch, and you can't sustain 100 miles an hour on your arm and elbow every single pitch. And you, that's why a lot of guys, as they get older, CC Sabathia is a good example. They lose that velocity, um, and they can't throw as hard, so they know they have to finesse it and, and, and work on their other pitches. DeGrom was throwing literally 95-mile-an-hour sliders and, like, 90-mile-an-hour change-ups, like stuff that is just unprecedented strain on somebody's elbow, That's n- stuff that's never been done before. It's incomprehensible. So the fact that he couldn't dial it down, and it's like, throw 95, but then when you get two strikes, then you, you can dial it up to, to 100. This guy couldn't dial it down. He just, it wasn't in his DNA, and it's not. And, and so that's why he's in this predicament. It's tough, so, but. All right. You know, I, I went through this before, and you know, I know what it takes to get back. Um, so. That's the goal. Go out there, you know, rehab as the best I can and and be around to help, you know, any way I can. Um, you know, we got a special group here. Um, and and then I'll be able to be out there and you know, help them win. That's it's tanks. So this is what we love to do, but you know, finding this out, coming here want, wanting to be out here and helping the team, you know, it's a, it's a disappointment, so. You know, what? one thing I'll say, because this is, uh, obviously, Jacob DeGrom's not the first guy to get Tommy John surgery or, the, you know, multiple Tommy John surgeries. Just look at a guy like his teammate, Nathan Avaldi, who's been around the block and had multiple Tommy John surgeries and is having, like, absolutely ridiculous season right now. But anyway, um, that's why I like a guy like Garrett Cole. That's why I'm okay with signing a guy like Garrett Cole to such a long contract because Garrett Cole is a hard-throwing, he could throw 100, but he is never really hurt, and he is making 20, 30 starts a year every year, and that's something that you can rely on. He has a very fluid, very easygoing, natural windup. Whereas if you've seen DeGrom, he really kind of jerks that arm back and he just whips it in there. And, and some of these guys, like your Chris Sales is another one. They have these funky, crazy three-quarters, like, you know, arm angles. And, yeah, they could be great early on in their career, but as the body starts to wear at, wear and tear and you get older – and you know you can't move as well as you used to. You can't you can't be putting that much strain on your elbow and expect it to last because it's just very it's not a natural thing to whip a ball like that that hard, you know, and and that often. So so these guys nowadays, right? They throw anywhere between in a start. You have starters that could throw 
100 pitches, maybe 105 pitches, but between like 80 and 100 pitches nowadays, whereas before they'd be throwing 120 to 130 pitches, you know, easily. Now think about that. So they throw that in the game. Then in between innings, there's warm-up pitches. Add on top of that, the warming up that they do before the game even starts. They throw probably 100 pitches plus hundreds of pitches just warming up. You know, they do they they come early in the morning and they do um they do their uh you know, their they'll they'll do their warm up in the afternoon in their shorts and t-shirt and they'll they'll throw long toss and and then eventually as they ramp it up then they get, you know, into uniform and then they do their bullpen before the game. I mean, lots and lots of pitches. And this is like every 5 days. And there's spring training and there's off-season workouts to stay in shape. And these guys are throwing like every week of their lives, of their professional careers. It's insane. So that level of rest- of strain on your arm um, and the guys are throwing, you're, you know, if, you, if you're wondering, well, guys back in the day didn't, didn't have this problem and always needing Tommy John. No, you're right. But these guys were not throwing a hundred miles an hour every. These there's guys throwing. Um, the guy on the the Minnesota Twins, I'm drawing a total blank. Um, but I will pull his name up just real quick because he's friggin' unbelievable. Uh, let's see, release pitchers. Come on. Okay, the guy Duran. Um, Joan Duran or Joan Duran, whatever, however you pronounce it. This guy throws 100 miles an hour, basically every one of his pitches. It is filthy. I, I mean, when have you ever heard of like 90 mile an hour plus change-ups and splitters and sinkers? And I mean, it's redonkulous how hard these guys can throw. And they're throwing every week. So this is why this is happening. When guys throw this hard, there's, you know, you can only stretch your elbow so much before it just gives out. And that's what's happening. All right. Enough of that. I'm sticking with baseball and I'm sticking with pitchers. Alec Manoa of the Blue Jays, who was a Cy Young finalist in the American League last year, was just optioned down to the Florida Complex League. This move comes after he allowed six earned runs and seven hits over one-third of an inning in Monday's 11-4 loss to the Astros. He didn't even make it out of the first inning. He got just one out. The twenty, He's only 25. He was an all-star and finished third in the American League Cy Young voting last year. But through 13 starts this year, he's 1-7 with a 6.36 ERA and a 6.52 FIP. He's, uh, his numbers are just so bad. Um, he's allowing 10.6 hits and 6.5, 6.5 walks per nine innings. And if you're wondering uh, what's what's FIP, because a lot of these you know these new stats, these nerdy stat guys, um, 
some of them I don't even know, but FIP is fielding independent pitching. It's similar to ERA, but it focuses on the events a pitcher has the most control over. Strikeouts, unintentional walks, hit by pitches, home runs, that sort of thing. Um, So just know he's bad. And according to Baseball Savant, opposing hitters are slugging 496 and have a 394 expected weighted on base average when he's on the mound. It's just insane. I I mean, we've heard of guys in the past getting sent down. You know, they got to work on their craft. Maybe they're tipping pitches, whatever. They tweak a little something and then they could come back. But this is a a little shaky for the Toronto Blue Jays who had, you know, they, they've had high, high hopes for a while now, the last few years, and they're, you know, they're in fourth place right now in, in the American League East. They're 36 and 28, um, but they are currently out of the playoffs as of right now. They're half a game back, so they've got some issues. Um, so something to keep an eye on. Okay, another cool, uh, cool story I wanted to talk about. We have one of the top young prospects in all of baseball who got called up this week and he just he just hits the eye test. You look at this kid and you're like, "Whoa. This guy is a stud. Just look at him. He looks athletic. He looks just like an absolute stud athlete, a stud baseball player. He's a third baseman." So the Reds called up uh Ellie De La Cruz this week. They batted him clean up in his first MLB start, that tells you all you need to know. And out of nowhere, because the Yankees just played the Reds and swept them, I believe, and I thought, eh, they're not that good. But all of a sudden, the Reds are making this push, and they're third. They're 29-34. and 34. Yeah, they're five games under, but they, they've really started to accomplish. They're only four games back of a wild card, and they, they've really added a spark since they called this 21-year-old kid up. And what did he do in his first MLB start? He ripped a 112-mile-an-hour triple into the gap, good for the hardest-hit ball by a Reds player all year. And it took him just 10.83 seconds to get from home to third, the fastest in baseball this year. Take a listen to what that sounded like. Just ridiculous. Dale Cruz passes to right center. Is he for real? He's going to go free. Easily has a triple. Folks, you better come down to the ballpark. You better come down here in Cincinnati and watch this young man play. Look at him pick him up and put him down. Those long strides. I'm telling you, Matty McClain, oh, my goodness, these two young kids. Some kind of fun watching them play. Yeah, this kid actually, the way he was running, they're right, long strides. And you heard the announcer, is he for real going to try for three? And then he makes it easily. 10.83 seconds. He looks like a tall, like like a track star, like an Usain Bolt like body type. And when he starts running around that turn from first and, and he turns that shoulder and he's going, man, it, oh, my God, it is, it is something to behold. You've got to see it. And then he wasn't done in the same game. Again, off Noah Syndergaard, who uh, another pitcher that might find himself out of a job pretty soon. He's been awful. Here, here is Ellie De La Cruz hitting a 458-foot home run. 
Tennis match, golf tournament silence. Anticipation to see what... Oh, goodness! <laughs> that ball had a family! <laughs> In game two, his first home run! A two-run bomb! the ballpark and the crown that Viking from the DR the hardest hit ball by a red this year that was nearly 115 it brought everyone to their feet all right so a couple things mistakes I might have made um that ball, the home run, that was in the first inning. He made his debut in the previous game. So I think the triple and the home run were in the same game being the second game. The home run was 115 miles an hour, they just said, or nearly 115 miles an hour. And I guess the triple was 112. So I don't know why I have the triple listed as the hardest ball hit by a Reds player all year because I'm almost certain I had I double-checked and looked this up that both of those hits were in the same game, the triple and the home run. So the home run actually came before the triple, uh, unless the announcer got it wrong and the triple was hit harder, but I don't think so because that was a fastball where the triple was like a curveball, and it was a pitch up. You had to see it. I mean, just a friggin' just a swing oh my god and it went to the top row of the stands it literally almost went out of the ballpark this kid if you live in Cincinnati or have a chance to see him uh you know go watch him because he looks like an absolute stud all right um we can recap game three of the NBA finals the game I just talked about in which I won some money 94 dollars to be exact which is funny because I just realized the Miami Heat ended the game with a final score of 94. The final in this one was 109 to 94. Uh, so the Nuggets faltered a bit in game two. We all know what happened. They lost by three. Jamal Murray, the step back. Personally, in those situations, I'm calling timeout, especially when you need a three. If you need a two, maybe I let them play it out because a two is easier to get, easy little floater, jump shot, layup, whatever. A three, it's harder to just run down the court and one guy dribble and, and take a reckless shot. So I would have called timeout there. Um, Mike Malone had words. Apparently, I read today some of the veterans, DeAndre Jordan, Jeff Green, um, Contavious Caldwell, Pope, Ish Smith, the locker room guys that usually, you know, talk um, and let the younger guys have it. Apparently, Jokic was another guy who surprisingly spoke up, and they said Jokic isn't really the motivator type or a guy that talks a lot. They equate him to Tim Duncan, but when he speaks, man, you listen. And Mike Malone called his team out for lack of effort as well. So I had a good feeling going into game three. I'm like, oh, only two and a half, three and a half point favorites. I kind of like the Nuggets, even though it's in Miami. And I was right. So they get back on track and and they sailed to victory. I, I mean, this wasn't even close, really. Uh, they closed, what, the first quarter? I think it was like maybe a five-point game or halftime. It was five-point game. And then they just continued to build that momentum. In the process, Jokic did something never before seen in the NBA Finals. He recorded a 30-point, 20-rebound, 10-assist triple-double. Never been done in an NBA Finals. And that's why he's your two-time 
slash should have been three-time MVP of this league. And by the way, his battery mate, it took him a little longer, took him to the final possession, but Jamal Murray nabbed that 10th rebound in the final seconds to record himself a 30-point triple-double, which, by the way, never been done in any NBA game ever where two teammates had 30-point triple-doubles. Unreal. Uh, One other note, heading into game four tomorrow, by the way, tomorrow night's game, Tyler Hero, who I would have, uh, um, I couldn't imagine, wouldn't have been playing by now, continues to have some some trouble with that hand, some soreness. Um, it's continuing to hurt him, and so there's no telling when or if he returns. And apparently, the Heat are a little bit concerned uh, about it. So I don't know if he's going to play at all in this series, especially if the Nuggets end up taking this in the next two games. Something to keep an eye on. Um, also this week, the Suns informed Chris Paul they'd be waiving him. This is a little bit interesting, um, much like the Dalvin Cook thing. They have a lot of payroll on this, a lot of players they have to pay. And Chris Paul, they have to pay a crap ton of money. They just got Kevin Durant unless they can, you know, finagle a trade of DeAndre Ayton and get his uh, cap hit out of there. I don't know what they're going to do. They'd like to bring Chris Paul back on a, on a smaller deal um, if they can, but it's going to be tough to do because there's interest from other teams. They're going to explore a trade. Um, Basically, just let um, Brian Windhorst explain explain it in better detail because he'll talk about here in this clip teams that are also possible uh, landing spots for him. Yeah, so one of the things that the Suns talked to Chris Paul about when they met with him is they could have four players make over $30 million this year, and the new CBA just makes it very difficult for that to uh, to, to happen. And so it's possible that they could make another move where they could save some salaries, especially if they're able to trade DeAndre Aiden. But I, so while the final decision hasn't been made, I think it's likely that by the end of the month, uh, June 28th, we'll see Chris Paul waived. And I think his future is in, in one of two places. One is Los Angeles, be it the Lakers or the Clippers, both teams potentially in need of a point guard. Their point guards on both teams are free agents, Russell Westbrook uh, and obviously uh, D'Angelo Russell. And it's not out of the realm of possibility. I think it's worth pointing out that the Suns could bring him back. It would almost act kind of like an NFL-style restructuring where his contract is paid out in a partial guarantee and they bring him back for a lesser salary. But that's what I would bet on. I would bet on either L.A. or Phoenix for Chris Paul uh, You know, once we get into July. So, there you have it. L.A. or Phoenix. Uh, we'll see if LeBron is actually staying in L.A. if he tries to bring in Chris Paul, but that that would be a disaster. They're already old, and we know that didn't work with Westbrook. So, maybe it could work with the Clippers uh, since Westbrook is a pending free agent, and they doubt they want to bring him back. So, just something to keep an eye on. And then I don't know if I mentioned it in here uh, or not, the Damian Lillard stuff. But basically, Damian Lillard is uh, mentioned that he wanted to get traded. There were two teams he mentioned, one of them being my Nets, believe it or not, as well as the Miami Heat. And he was on Instagram Live last night or the other night maybe, and Jason Tatum jumped in there and, and was making jokes about, you know, because I think he said something about not not wanting to go to Boston or the Boston fans or something like that. So uh, that's another player to keep an eye on, although many still do believe that he is going to stay in Portland, but there's been rumors surrounding his departure for a very long time.
Okay, earlier this week, news of Lionel Messi's signing with Inter Miami sent shockwaves through the world, really, because soccer transcends um, any one sport, any one country. It's world... It, it is a worldwide sport. So this is crazy. It was basically between his former team that he spent, what, like 20 years with or something, FC Barcelona and Inter Miami, which is an MLS team. It's like, wow. Uh, but this is usually what happens. We've seen this in the past with guys like Beckham and, um, you know, Thierry Henry and Zlatan Ibrahimovic coming later into in their careers over to the MLS. But, he chooses Inner Miami, and the world went nuts. So Inner Miami is a relatively new team. It's actually owned by David Beckham. More on that in a second. But the team Instagram account had one million followers prior to Messi's announcement. I checked it earlier this morning, and it had um, six point eight million. We're gonna check it right now. Hits up to seven million. 7 million followers and counting, which is more than any other non-NBA team account in North American sports. I checked. The New York Yankees, the most prodigious, winningest team in sports, only has over a little over 3 million followers. So when I tell you that soccer, again, transcends any country, anyone, like it is worldwide, and this proves it crazy and good luck you're not getting tickets anytime soon to go see one of those games unless you are are a personal friend of David Beckham's so again you might be wondering like why Messi chose Miami over his former club Barcelona and there is the Beckham thing of course you know we've seen this in the past these guys coming over it's an interesting structure so this is how his deal was structured so if you think about David Beckham right David Beckham was able to purchase Inter, uh, Inter Miami due to a clause in his initial MLS contract that allowed him to purchase a franchise after retirement for just $25 million. He hosed the MLS in this deal. Uh, big wigs in, in the U.S. probably just wanted him that desperately that they made this deal with him. And the MLS has been growing like crazy. When Beckham came over, there was, I think, only a handful of teams. Now there's like 20-something teams, I think, and there are uh, there's plans for a lot more. So he bought Inter-Miami for $25 million. In February of this year, Forbes valued them at $600 million. Oh, my God. Talk about a sweet investment. Um, it's also worth noting that Messi turned down a reported $1.6 billion final offer sheet from Saudi Arabia, which we know what they've been doing in the golf game, so no shock there, right? Um, and we also saw recently that Ronaldo went there on a $200 million deal, I believe it was, and there's rumors that he is uh, possibly coming over to the MLS next year. So um, a little bit more about the structure of this deal because I talked about what Beckham had, and it's a little bit similar. So Messi, what was so enticing for him, Messi will get a profit share of new MLS season pass subscribers, which, by the way, that is an Apple TV Plus edition that you can add, and I've been getting pop-ups when I go on there. It's half off currently because either they're at the end of the season or I don't know what, but they were offering it for half off um, MLS 
It says, every match, every screen, get over 50% off the season pass now. Let's see what it's priced at. Uh, a monthly pass is $14.99. A season pass is $49. Uh, so actually not terrible. I don't know what you, you get every game with that. I don't know exactly how many games or what. but And the earliest we could see Messi in the MLS, I'm hearing, is July. So stay tuned because it's going to be bananas. Okay, just segue into the whole Saudi Arabia thing. Bombshell hit us on Tuesday. The golf world was shocked. Most PGA Tour professionals found out on Twitter. We all woke up to this. Everybody found out at the same time that the PGA was, in fact, merging with Live Golf and the DP World Tour. All merging. And it's like, what? Commissioner of the PGA Tour, Jay Monahan, not too long ago, blasted guys for, for going to live and saying, you know, think about it. Did you ever have to apologize um, for, for going to a league and the whole sport washing and, and uh, the connections to Saudi Arabia and 9-11 that he was making? And then he turns around and agrees to merge. And it just proves the hypocrisy. I don't know that he can survive this, Monaghan. Um, it's great for the game of golf because a lot of these top pros, I mean, look what Brooks Kepka just won the Masters um, or, or the PGA Championship, and um, he's a live golfer. So there's been a lot of hype around these live golfers you know, more and more keep going over to live and live has insurmountable amounts of money. The Saudis have proved that nobody's watching it. Really. It's kind of a failure, but they're just throwing money. And, and the key here, I think too, is a lot of the, there was a lot of lawsuits and a lot of litigation going on. And you had the Patrick Reed suing and, and a lot of lawsuits going. And I don't know if the PGA wanted that to, wanted their, how do I put this? I don't think the PGA wanted anything to become public, their financials, their, you name it. I don't think they wanted to drag this out in court. So the Saudis threw money at them, and this just proves capitalism, baby. Anybody can be bought. Everybody has a price. Everybody. I mean, I, we joke around our friends. Like, there are some dirty, disgusting things that we, you know, that people would do for money. You know, if somebody offered me $10 million to do something, you know, it, I'm going to consider doing it no matter what it is. And I mean, no matter, because that is life changing money. And that's why these guys were going over to the live in the first place. Cause you're getting offered 200 million. Tiger Woods got offered almost uh, two, two, uh, excuse me, a billion dollars. Um, Matsuyama, I believe it was, got offered almost seven hundred fifty million dollars. It's crazy. And so, how do these guys feel now that didn't go to live, and now the live golfers are just back? And they got not only did they get the money from live, they're just back in the PGA Tour. 
Boom, just like that. So it's crazy. I don't know all the insane details, but a guy that's been totally outspoken on it is, of course, Rory McIlroy, and he he's had a lot to say of late, but here was one clip that I thought was pretty funny. He's just like, dude, I hate live golf still. I hate it. And he even goes into detail on, like, he doesn't know what it's going to look like yet. There could be a team element, except just listen. Take a listen for yourself. What do you say to fans who are disappointed in this deal? But it's not live. I think that's the thing. I still hate live. Like, I hate live. Like, I, I hope it goes away, and I would fully expect that it does. Um, and I think that's where the distinction here is. This is the PJ Tour, the DP World Tour, and the PIF. Very different from live. All I've do- tried to do is protect what the PJ Tour is and what the PJ Tour stands for, and I think it will continue to to do that um so look going forward i hope that there's you know there may be a team element and you're going to see maybe me maybe whoever else play in some sort of team golf but i don't think it'll look anything like live has looked and i think that's a good thing so yeah just a little bit interesting that like even rory doesn't know what's going on to be honest so crazy. Um, we're hour 15 in. I want to wrap this up. So let's move along pretty quickly here. Um, Sunday, Victor Hovland won in a playoff to claim the memorial at Muirfield, his biggest victory yet. And most guys would celebrate, go out drinking, party, friends and family, have a good time. No, instead of celebrating like a normal person, the very next day, well, less than 24 hours later, Hovland, a professional PGA Tour player who has his own caddy, decided to go caddy for his former college roommate in a U.S. Open qualifier. Just incredible. And I think it was 36 holes that he carried this kid's bag. So Zach uh, Bauchu or Baucho, um, not really sure how to pronounce that. They were college roommates at Oklahoma State where they played together. Uh, so I think that's just classy, classy move. Just awesome um, but Hovland, Victor Hovland, should not give up his day job anytime soon because his buddy did not make the cut. And then we've got to talk about Rose Zhang. Learn the name, folks, because she just finished her junior year at Stanford where she became the first player to win back-to-back national championships. She actually won this year's championship a few weeks ago two days before her 20th birthday. So she was 19 years old when she did it. First ever to win back-to-back. And then she goes pro and is playing in her first LPGA event, Liberty National in Jersey City, which I've been to. She dazzled. She didn't even play her best. She shot a 74, a 74 on Sunday and bogeyed 18 to force a playoff. Otherwise, she would have won outright. But she stayed poised, she stayed composed, and she won, I think, on the second playoff hole. First career professional event, and she wins it, just like that. It's just incredible. She became the, So she became the first player ever to win an NCAA championship and LPGA event in the same year. And she became the first woman since Beverly Hansen in 1951 to win in her professional debut. Oh, and stop me if you heard this before. A prodigious... Once in a generational talent golfer from Stanford. 
ring any bells? <coughs> Tiger <coughs> Woods? Yeah, just insane. Okay, this weekend we've got NBA Finals Game 4, Stanley Cup Finals Game 4, Champions League Final, Man City versus Inter Milan tomorrow, 3 p.m. If you're interested in that, College World Series Super Regionals got underway today. A um, couple good series, MLB series this weekend. The Texas Rangers at the Tampa Bay Rays, two first-place teams, two of the best teams in baseball, Tampa Bay on a six-game win streak. And then you've got the Yankees and Red Sox. You've got Garrett Cole tonight against Garrett Whitlock. Um, so we'll see how that goes. The Yankees lineup has been um, less than ideal. They called up Billy McKinney, some 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 guy less than likely guys, um, Willie Calhoun, Jake Bauer's been getting it done. So we'll see. The Red Sox aren't that good. We'll, we'll see how that amounts. Then you got uh, the Miami um, Marlins at the White Sox. Keep an eye out, folks. Luis Arias is hitting 403 on the season. It's absolutely ridiculous. No one has hit 400 in a season since Ted Williams. And the closest ever was Tony Gwynn, who hit 394. Uh, so, I mean, it's un, it's he's having the best season in at least 15 years. Highest batting average in at least 15 years up to this point. He's getting multi-hit games, like, every day. So keep an eye out for Luis Arias. He he won a batting title. He prevented uh, Aaron Judge from winning, taking home a triple crown last year when he was on the Twins. Now he looks to become the second player ever besides DJ LeMahieu to win a batting title in both leagues. Just ridiculous. Um, so yeah, look out for him. Then you've got the Mets at Pirates this weekend. The Mets have lost six in a row, including last night's brutal sweep against the Braves. They had a 10-9 lead in the ninth. David Robertson served up a home run to uh, Arcia, and then they lost on a three-run bomb in the 10th inning. Just a tough blow. They got swept by the Braves. They are have lost like six in a row. Pete Alonso got hit on the wrist. He's out, which sucks because early next week we have Yankees and Mets Subway Series. There will be no judge and no Pete Alonzo, so that sucks. Okay, let me update you on the RBC Canadian Open, which is taking place in Canada, which surprisingly they have not mentioned anything about the smoke or anything like that, so it looks like it's okay there. Um, Carl Yoon um, is in first right now, nine under. Uh, a lot of guys, I don't know. Aaron Aaron Rye, um, well, we know who Tyrell Tyrell Hatton is, um, C.T. Pan, Corey Connors. Yeah, it's a loaded field. Uh, leaders at nine under. You've got guys all the way four under, three under. So, yeah, long weekend ahead of ourselves. I think Rory was three under. Rory's there at six under now. He finished six under. He shot a 67 today. So, there you go. Okay. So you have that. And then, of course, French Open. By the way, um, Djokovic, or Djokovic, he made the French Open final, I think becoming the oldest player to do so. He knocked off the number one seed early this morning. So something to keep an eye on. And I don't know what's going on with the women's side, sorry to say. But that is on this weekend. And it's probably going to be super early in the morning. Okay, last but not least, on this date in sports, June 9th, 1987, Magic Johnson's hook shot with two seconds left put the Lakers up 3-1 on Larry Bird's Celtics in the NBA Finals. And I have audio of that. Take a ball and a shot to win it. Down by one. Five seconds to go. Magic 
So there you have that. And before I let you go, um, let's see. We've got a lot of new movies and TV shows. If you have not yet seen Air on Amazon Prime, please go see that. Also, I heard that the if you if you were a big fan of the docu series on Netflix, Full Swing, that covered the PGA and Live, I haven't finished it. The cameras were rolling for season two when the merger was announced this week. So they are going to have great footage of individual players and their reactions and whatnot as this came out live. So that's going to be awesome to see. And then, of course, um, it's my dad's birthday tomorrow, so happy birthday to him. I won't reveal your age, uh, his age, um, for lack of embarrassment, but he's up there. And we'll be playing golf tomorrow in the afternoon, and um, it'll be a nice birthday present for me to hopefully kick his ass. Um, So, yeah, he'll be listening to this at some point, and I'm sure he'll get a chuckle out of that. And next week... Um, I'll come back if I remember and because I won't be scared. I'm not scared. And I'll let you guys know who won because I will admit most of the time he does beat me, but he's also plays about three to four times a week. Um, And I start off slow. I, I, I've been I've been keeping up with him. I, I've beaten him the last, I think like two out of the last four rounds or two out of the last three. I think I had a better score than him on the back nine. Um, but he usually has been pummeling me on the front. We always hit the turn and he's up like six strokes. But I haven't had a good game in about a year um, in terms of my, my striking of the ball. I'm hitting my irons really high and I've lost tons of distance. And I'm an amateur. I don't play a lot as much as he does. I can't, obviously. And so I, I don't have, you know, consistent, I can't practice enough to, to get my swing back, but, uh, we'll see. I'll make it work. Uh, so with that being said, guys, enjoy your weekend, stay safe. If you're in like New York or something and the smoke and the smog is still an issue, just stay indoors. There's a lot going on that you can watch on TV. Um, with all the streaming services and whatnot, I can never get bored. I could stay inside all day long, and I will probably never get bored. So um, enjoy the NBA Finals. Enjoy, uh, you know, baseball. Uh, enjoy it all because the I'm going to go watch the NBA Finals Game 4 right now as I, um, po- you know, get ready to post this episode, do some editing, and get this posted up in the next half hour or so while I watch that game. So um, enjoy the weekend, everybody. So long, and I will see you next week. This is the Pody signing off.